From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. March is National Nutrition Month, an annual education campaign to help consumers make better food choices. The theme this year is Go Further with Food. On today's program, we'll learn more from a Mayo Clinic expert. Food waste is one of these places where we can flip the conversation and say, but what if I could save you $1,500 a year? Because that's what the average family of four is throwing away. If we would never throw cash, why are we throwing the food in the waste basket? Also on the program, we'll learn about melanoma of the eye. And a new study using modern technology to help cancer patients communicate easily with their doctors. All that, along with this week's health and medical news, right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You probably eat out a lot. Well, not you. I'm talking about our audience, really. And most Americans do. And people are there looking for fast, easy, and good-tasting foods that they can squeeze into a busy lifestyle. Sometimes you forget to think, what are we having to eat tonight? All right. And, you know, you're like a lot of people. In two career couples, it's tough to go Mm -hmm. home and fix a meal for your spouse and your kids. Now, whether it's carry-out, food court, or a sit-down restaurant, there are smart, healthy choices everywhere if you know what to look for. I guess that's the big if, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, March is National Nutrition Month. It's sponsored by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics to help consumers uh, figure out better choices about what they should eat. And here to offer some tips for healthy eating on the go is Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Zaratsky. We're always happy to have you on the program, Kate. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Kate, always good to have you with us. So is it true that much of what we eat out isn't very healthy? Probably first and foremost, we eat out a lot. Probably more than 60% of our food dollar is spent away from home. And so we're eating out more than we're eating at home. And I think when we eat at home, we have a whole lot more control over not only how the food is prepared, but how much ends up on our plate, which is a an indicator of how much we'll consume in the end. So 60% of food dollars are spent outside the home. Mm-hmm. Pretty amazing. Well, first of all, the way that it's different is that at my kitchen, you cannot order an appetizer. Yeah. I, I, I <laughs> often, not a very good one. I, I mean, often think, though, that when it comes to uh, my teenagers, maybe if you have little kids, if I did offer appetizers that were like healthy stuff, like I'm going to put on some vegetables and dip, while everything else is getting done, because I always say, come and sit at the table while we're finishing getting ready to eat, because then we that's when we talk, and that's one of the good things about eating at home. When we get home from work at night, when kids get home from school, we're hungry. And so having that forethought of what can I have available really can set you up for success. And so if vegetables and fruits are readily available... And nothing else... Yes, that people will choose those. And, and it can, and even people who, if, if they're hungry and preparing a meal, I would say, if you walk in the door and, and the cookie jars on the counter or the bag of chips, that's what you're going to dive into while you're cooking your dinner. So you're going to consume probably three to 500 calories before you've even sat down for dinner. Whereas if you open the bag of baby carrots, it's all right if you get, make it through halfway through the bag or the whole bag. The best invention ever, baby carrots. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, but that's the, the, the secret is that's all you put out there. Because have you ever been, you've been to a, a thousand um, 
parties and they got hors d'oeuvres out there and everybody goes and buys the celery and the carrots and nobody touches them. <laughs> they all go to whatever else is there and they end up throwing them away. We're going to talk about food waste later, but there's a lot of carrots and celery at the compost pile. <laughs> <laughs> at least at your parties, I yeah. guess. <laughs> Well, um, let's talk a little bit more about picking up carryout to bring home. Because Americans are so busy that restaurants and uh, food establishments are catering to what we need. And so they make it very easy for us to pick up food for that evening rush. And so it, it doesn't have to be all bad. It might be that you pick up an already cooked chicken. It might be that you stop and get some food that's already prepared. But if you're taking that home, then you can balance out the meal by adding some frozen vegetables or cutting up some fruit or other things like that as, you know, very healthy accompaniments and not only accompaniments, but you can make that a larger portion of the meal. And then again, looking at your food dollar, if you're able to stretch that food you brought in, and then you have leftovers the next day. That can be a really great thing. You like chicken? Chicken's okay? Dark meat, even even dark meat chicken okay? (laughs) And dark meats, actually, with chicken, I'd say just take the skin off. And with dark meat, especially for maybe small children or women who are looking to consume more iron, actually, I, I would recommend they eat the dark meat. Go okay. That's what Something, you like to hear. Yeah, and then salmon, good. Salmon's good, isn't it? Salmon's very good. Always. As all fish are. Now you know the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics offered about thirty tips for eating on the run. Can you share some of those with us? Sure, and and some of them go right along with what we've been what we've been talking about because we're we're all busy and eating on the run. But and I think you know first and foremost, if you can take some time out of your week when things aren't so busy to just stop and think about what's going on this week and can I plan for it? And then you can think about when I'm making my grocery list, what do I need to get that is simple and easy to pack that maybe doesn't require refrigeration or that I can put in a small cooler? So you can have components of a meal. So you have some protein, so you have some starch, so you have some vegetables and fruits those things that would make up a healthy meal, you can have them right there in the car. So if you're you're getting home and having to be somewhere else in 15 minutes, that cooler is ready mm-hmm. to go. Or it maybe the food is in in a section of the refrigerator that you just grab it and throw it in a bag and you go. Yet another reason that's a bonus to live in this part of the country. Stuff stays cold in your car. <laughs> you don't want it frozen, but Who it does stay cold. Listen, this list is available at eatright.org. And one of these 30 uh, tips... I especially love, and it's number 11 because it's about splitting your order. And there are more and more restaurants that are offering, whether it's noontime or evening, half of an entree or half of a sandwich or half of a salad. Do you see that happening more and more at restaurants or am I just imagining it? Well, whether it's happening or not, I think it's a really nice option when they do because Over the past maybe 10 to 20 years, restaurant portions have become very large. And to our our preference and to our perception of, oh, that's a good deal when I get a lot of food for the price I'm paying, we tend to eat more. So I, if we can pare it back to a half of an entree and be uh, satisfied with that because it also matches the price. I think there's a lot to be gleamed from that in terms of health in our pocketbooks. It seems to me like there are a few things uh, that the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics doesn't really like or doesn't think that are very healthy. A bread 
chips and french fries. Particularly <laughs> tough on french fries and these uh, tips. Well, and I think, Dr. Shives, I think that's a great thing to bring up because we often French fries are a very common side. Now, if you have the option to say, can I get a side of fresh fruit or do you have a side salad that I could swap out for those French fries, that would be a great option. Um, if you cannot or say you really like your fries, the idea, again, of sharing them. The is, communal fries. Yes. That's what we have, the communal fries. I know, because <laughs> if you order them, somebody's always grabbing one. Anyway, I share them whether I want to or not. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about uh, healthier choices. Would you say that at most restaurants, uh, when they have what they call healthy choices or healthy foods, that they truly are healthy? Well, healthy is is not a, uh, I guess, a regulated term. And so healthy can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so I think when you're at a restaurant, if you are seeing a healthy selection, See if they have a, a calorie level or if they have other nutritional information that you can compare it to to see if it really meets your definition of healthy. It should be, you know, relatively uh, low to moderate in calories and have a lower in t- a lower amount of saturated fat um, and a relatively lower amount of sodium, which is a tough again tough to do in a restaurant setting. Um, but in terms of again healthy, you might want to ask. How is it being prepared? And so you might make a special request of how much oil things are sautéed in or if butter is added before it comes to the table or if it is salted before it comes to you. One of the things that I also note from this list, again, it's available at eatright.org. It's 30 tips for eating on the go, eating on the run. Um, One of them was that you should just, when you're out to eat, eat the lower-calorie food first which I thought is really interesting because it makes so much common sense, but it's actually something I'd never thought of before. Right. And when you think of the lower calorie foods, they're generally fruits and vegetables. And as Mother Nature made them, those are 80 to 90 percent water. And so they're, they're heavy and they're filling because they also have fiber. And so if you're filling up on, on your salad or other vegetables or fruits uh, prior to the other foods, you're probably going to control your overall calorie intake as well. Doesn't look to me like the dietitians of the world are very keen on all-you-can-eat buffets. Uh, all-you-can-eat buffets are challenging, and and for many different reasons. But it, again, as Americans, we we like choice, and when we have a lot of choice, it's a bit overwhelming, and we tend to eat more in those types of situations. And so we dish up more, we make more trips. So if you find yourself at in that type of situation. Maybe survey the buffet ahead of time, find your fruits, find your vegetables, take a plate, <laughs> fill it mostly with those fruits and vegetables, and, and, and get a good source of protein or fish, and then and then the last part of your plate, you can put a little bit of, if it would be your white mm-hmm. rice or, or, or another starch, and then if you, again, if a little bit of dessert, if you can squeeze it on there or share the dessert at the end with a friend. Yep, and save room for that ice cream because you can get all you want right out of that big machine. (laughs) That's that's (laughs) trouble. We've been talking about uh, finding ways to make better nutrition choices when you're eating out. It is National Nutrition Month. We are with Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Zeratsky. Time for a short break. When we come back, we'll cover another hot nutrition topic, how to avoid wasting food. And we'll have a myth or a matter of fact Americans throw away 90 billion pounds of food every year. Myth or matter of fact. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. 
Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. March is National Nutrition Month, and we're back talking with Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Zaratsky. Kate, another hot topic, and Dr. Shives was a little skeptical that it is a hot topic, uh, but it's about reducing food waste. So we'll start off with that myth or matter of fact. Americans throw away 90 billion pounds of food each year. Is that a myth or a fact? That is a fact. Can no, you believe it, Dr. Shives? with a B. <laughs> so uh, explain to us, what do you mean by food waste? So food waste, uh, it can be categorized in, in, in a few different ways. And so that number, actually that $90 billion that we're talking about, may not even be capturing maybe all of the food wow. waste in the world. So when we think about food waste, there's the food that when you think about your own household, and, and maybe it's the leftovers that didn't get eaten or those fruits and vegetables that were in the crisper and were forgotten about. Or think about things that are in your freezer and they get pushed to the back and you pull them out and you're not quite sure what it is. <laughs> those are all examples of household food waste. And then you think beyond our own household, uh, there, is, there are crops that never make it out of the farmer's fields. There are, uh, there's restaurant waste. There is grocery store waste. And because so the stuff's not pretty enough for us to buy. So <laughs> exactly. We like our fruits and vegetables and our foods to look a certain way and we like them to look very shiny and perfect. And they are certainly in many cases still edible if they're not shiny and perfect. You know, I don't think people are as conscientious or as money conscious as as my mother used to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think we threw away anything. And, and we uh, lots of nights, we had leftovers. We don't have leftovers like we, we used to. It's easier mm-hmm. to throw it away and buy something. And, and part of it, because we eat out so much, and then the stuff at home that we didn't eat spoils. And that that could be part of it, too, is is that I think when we, we think about our overall uh, pattern of food intake, uh, we all could do a better job at making better use of the food that we buy. Oftentimes when I'm working with people and we start talking about food waste, because I often hear eating healthy is expensive. Mm-hmm. And so food waste is one of these places where we can flip the conversation and say, but what if I could save you $1,500 a year? Because that's what the average family of four is throwing away. And I, really? and I would say none of us would readily walk up to a garbage can and throw a 20 or 30, $30 in that mm-hmm. each week. But essentially, when you break it down, that's what's happening. And so if we would never throw cash in the waste basket, why are we throwing the food that we've purchased in the waste basket? It, when you're at the grocery store and, say, you are offered a sample of something, because on sample day, the sales of that particular product go up 30 to 40 percent. Uh, my mother-in-law always says Oh, that, say oh, that again. On, I'm sorry. Day. On sample day. So if you go to the grocery store and they offer oh. you a sample. <laughs> my favorite day to go grocery shopping. <laughs> the sales of that product increase about 30 to 40 percent. Is that right? And my mother-in-law always says it always tastes better in the store. <laughs> so she buys it and gets it home and finds, okay, now I'm gonna, now what am I going to do with this? And I think we all can relate to that because we tried it in the store, and in that moment we were persuaded to put that in our cart, and now we have this item, and maybe we bought it in bulk. Yep. And so we have a lot of it. And so it's the idea of when we're going to put something into our cart, 
to think about how the next step is how will I use it? Mm-hmm. And I think it's, again, it's that thought process. How and when will I use this? Again, thinking ahead to your week and how busy am I? When do I have time to cook? When and how? One of the tips that you have for avoiding food waste uh, that we've got listed here is to get creative with leftovers. What do you mean by that? Is all of us watch more and more cooking shows and, and maybe are eating at restaurants and we are seeing beautiful pictures of food and how it's plated. In our mind, I think we think that food has to look and, and seem a certain way. And when you have a mismatch of things in your refrigerator, you think, well, that's not a meal. When actually, if you have some fruits and vegetables, some protein, some starch, you have a meal. And so it need not necessarily look picture perfect again, but if you can put it together in the proportions of a balanced meal, you've got a meal. And so at our house, we'll often have the challenge of at a certain, toward the end of the week, when we have to go to the grocery store, yet I haven't gone, we have a clean out the fridge night. (laughs) And so we, we use the foods and it, it might be a complete, you know, a mismatch of things, and it's, it's a smorgasbord of sort. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and isn't there, there must be a website where you can go and say, here's what I've got in the fridge, what do I do with it? And they tell you how to make a meal. Isn't there a site like that? I am, there's so many good websites. And yeah. in fact, there's, there's websites now that actually will say, help you keep inventory with your food if you're, if you're indeed looking to be more serious about, uh, your food waste. And so you can say, I bought this food on this day and it helps kind of track or remind you. You need to eat that. Would you please tell us the difference between use by, best by, and best before? Oftentimes when you see those dates on food, they are not for you and I. They are for the grocer or the manufacturer, and they are looking at quality or rotation within their stock. So oftentimes those foods are just fine for us to eat from a safety perspective. All right. I I got a tip. I know it's National Nutrition Month. I'm not a registered dietitian, but... Here it is. Works for us. Don't go to the grocery store hungry. Oh, boy. That's a good one. (laughs) March is National Nutrition Month. We've been visiting with Kate Zaratsky, registered dietitian at the Mayo Clinic, talking about healthy choices when you eat out and food waste. Kate, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about a rare form of cancer, melanoma of the eye. And later on in the show, using a modern form of communication, the emoji to track quality of life in cancer patients. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. Patients who were treated for breast cancer or lymphoma are more than three times at risk for developing congestive heart failure compared with patients who did not have cancer. Congestive heart failure is when the heart muscle does not pump blood as well as it should. This is according to a Mayo Clinic study. Now, the majority of patients do not develop heart failure, but the research helped doctors recognize the importance of appropriate heart care following cancer treatment. They say research suggests that monitoring for heart damage may be needed for some cancer patients. Additionally, it emphasizes that working to live a heart-healthy lifestyle is important for cancer patients and survivors to reduce the overall risk of heart disease. And in other news, regular aerobic activities such as walking, biking, or swimming can help you live longer and healthier. Do you need motivation to get started or keep going? 
Well, aerobic exercise is very beneficial to your heart, lungs, and blood flow. So get moving and start reaping the rewards. During aerobic activity, you repeatedly move large muscles in your arms, legs, and hips. You'll notice your body's responses quickly. You'll breathe faster and more deeply. This maximizes the amount of oxygen in your blood. Your heart will beat faster, which increases blood flow to your muscles and back to your lungs. Your small blood vessels, called capillaries, will widen to deliver more oxygen to your muscles and carry away waste products, such as carbon dioxide and lactic acid. Your body will even release endorphins. They are natural painkillers that promote an increased sense of well-being. Regular aerobic exercise also helps lots of things, including keeping extra pounds at bay, warding off viral illnesses, managing chronic conditions, boosting your mood, and it may even help keep your memory sharp. And you don't have to be a marathon runner. Just move more. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McCray. Tracy, when we hear the word melanoma, we think skin cancer. Melanoma, in fact, is a type of cancer that develops in the cells that produce melanin, the pigment that gives your skin its color. Now, you, what you may not know is that your eyes also have melanin-producing cells, and you can get melanoma of the eye. It's a rare disease, but there's an organization that's trying to help. That's right. Founded in 2011, CURE-OM, which stands for the Community United for Research and Education of Ocular Melanoma, is an initiative by the Melanoma Research Foundation to raise awareness and increase research funding for ocular melanoma. Joining us on the phone to discuss ocular melanoma is the director of CURE-OM, Dr. Sarah Selig. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Selig. Thank you for having me. Dr. Selig, you're in Boston at Brigham and Women's. Yes although um, my clinical expertise is not ocular melanoma. All right, so not melanoma of the eye. So how did you get interested? Uh, What led you to become a researcher and a proponent of learning more about ocular melanoma? Well, I think I I got involved in a way that I think most people would rather not get involved, um, which um, was with the diagnosis of my husband, Greg, when I was a fourth-year medical student and had heard of melanoma, but at that point had certainly not heard um, that you could get melanoma uh, in your eye. And so I first learned about that sitting in the exam room with Greg and the ophthalmologist who diagnosed him. Um, It was not in the classroom or in my medical training for me. Wow, that must have been a tough day. It was a very tough day, and I remember almost every detail of it as if it was yesterday, and it was 11 years ago. So uh, did, did he have symptoms? I mean, uh, why did you end up going to the physician? He did have symptoms. Um, he was um, seeing some wavy lines um, in his peripheral vision when he went out on um, some runs in the morning. Um, and as a fourth-year medical student, as um, you know, I had just enough information um, to not know what I was talking mm-hmm. about. Sure. And, you know, I thought maybe it was an ocular migraine. I thought maybe it was sort of um, caffeine rebound um, symptoms uh, related to headache. And I sort of wrote it off as I did with any family member who had a symptom because you just, in the medical profession, at least <laughs> for me, my reaction has been I just I don't want them to be sick. So I didn't want to think it could be 
anymore, but Greg, knowing his body, decided to, he had never had an eye exam before. He was 34 years old and went uh, for his first ophthalmology appointment, and they noticed that he had a small retinal detachment um, and referred him to um, someone else who who specializes in, in eye tumors. And that person told us that the small retinal detachment was causing the wavy lines he was experiencing, and the small retinal detachment was being caused by a growth on the back of his eye. Mm -hmm. Um, And they later called that growth a tumor. But I think one of the things I learned so much from the physician who diagnosed Greg, who I really admire, he didn't call it a tumor right away, which kept us being able to listen a little longer. Because then when we heard tumor, we sort of shut down. How did they find this? So this was through a dilated eye exam. His tumor was um, in the back part of the eye, in the uvea, um, and it was really through that exam and an ultrasound um, that he received the diagnosis. And when they said uh, tumor, did they know it was a melanoma, or did did he have to have a biopsy? They knew it was a melanoma. Mm, Because it was, I I assume, dark or pigmented or black? Right. I think there's, there's kind of a list. I don't have them in front of me right now, but there are a list of, you know, diagnostic criteria. Okay. And um, biopsies, interestingly, um, have been controversial in the OM space, um, but are used now to get genetic material for prognostication rather than for diagnosis. So, what about so tre- what, what about treatment? What did they, What did you do about it? He was diagnosed in Denver, where we were living, and he was treated in Philadelphia with a radioactive plaque that was inserted. Um, sewn around the tumor in his eye and left on for several days while he was in the hospital at Will's Eye Hospital. Was the treatment successful? The primary tumor treatment was successful in that they felt, you know, that tumor was dead and, um, and he did not have any additional regrowth over the years. So I would say that the primary treatment um, was successful. Greg developed metastatic disease in his liver one year oh, later. Oh, my gosh. So successful, I think, can have a couple of different meanings. And once it spread uh, there at that time, and, and even now, not very good at treatment for melanoma that's metastatic, that's spread elsewhere. Yes. Um, and, and much of the, adva- the amazing advances that have happened in cutaneous melanoma, unfortunately, have not had the same impact on uveal melanoma. So when Greg was diagnosed, with liver metastasis one year, um, almost to the day from his original diagnosis. So he was 35 at the time. I was 30, and we were told he had six months to live. Wow. You know, our sympathies truly are, are with you. And we got so wrapped up in the story, we almost forgot to talk about uh, Cure OM. So tell us about Cure OM. Well, Cure OM is um, an initiative that Greg and I founded really because through our experience, um, it was hard to to find education and support about the disease, and we realized that there was not a lot of collaboration um, in the scientific community and not a lot of support for research um, in the scientific com- community, and we really wanted to um, provide support and education for, for patients, and we really wanted to galvanize um, research in this disease and to, to impact you know, to find effective treatments and ultimately a cure. And by the time we founded Cure OM, we knew Greg wasn't going to make it. Mm. But I think for us, if we could take the challenges that we have experienced and turn that into hope for other families that they wouldn't have to go through the devastation that we've lived through, 
then it's just been worth it for us to be able to help others through our challenges. And then I think something good will have come out of, of all that we've been through. Can you tell us more about the registry that you're developing? Yes. Um, with a rare disease like uveal melanoma, with about 2,000 or so cases diagnosed each year in the United States, um, we are learning from other advocacy organizations and just really the state-of-the-art research that pulling together a registry, a patient-powered, patient-reported registry, um, is really the way we need to go so that we can get a much deeper, broader understanding of this disease and really get patients actively involved in the research process. And I think through this initiative, our hope is that we will make a big dent in this disease. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Sarah Selig. Uh, our sympathies and condolences regarding your uh, husband. It I, obviously was a tough time in your life, but you're doing good for other people who may develop this rare disease, ocular melanoma. Well, thank you so much for having me on and for your kindness and for helping to raise awareness about ocular melanoma. We're really grateful to you. You bet. Dr. Sarah Selig, Director of Cure OM, Community United for Research and Education of Ocular Melanoma. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, I'll have an interview on a new research project using emojis to track cancer patients' quality of life. Want to hear more and see more Mayo Clinic Radio? Subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Radio podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Or check out more than 200 Mayo Clinic Radio segments on video, now available on YouTube. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Tracy McRae. You might think of emojis as a fun way to communicate with friends in our text messages and on social media, but a new study conducted by Mayo Clinic found another use for those little yellow faces. In findings presented to the American Society of Hematology, Mayo Clinic researchers found that using emojis was an easy way to track quality of life for cancer patients and less time-consuming than traditional questionnaires. Here to discuss is the lead author of the study, Mayo Clinic hematologist, Dr. Carrie Thompson. Welcome to the program, Dr. Thompson. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you, too. I have only gotten into the habit very recently of using emojis. Same with me. Okay. All right. So we're both in on this now. And it's quite interesting to learn that it's it makes life easier for cancer patients. Explain a little bit about that. Absolutely. So... Emojis are universal now, so even my parents are using emojis. (laughs) But cancer patients have a lot of symptoms that can occur during treatment or after treatment, and tracking those symptoms is really important. But currently we use traditional paper and pen questionnaires that can be quite lengthy and ask a lot of questions that can be difficult to figure out, well, on a scale of 0 to 10, where am I exactly? So what we wanted to do was develop a scale of emoji faces that we're all familiar with and determine if they were, um, if they tracked with the usual zero to 10 scale and if we can estimate how patients are doing using, you know, just a, a, a one click. Uh, so in order to do this study, we actually, um, picked out faces ourselves as the study team, and then went to cancer patients and had them do a an exercise. We said, which face represents a better mood, A or B, B or C, until we had a scale that went in order from worst to best. Hmm. And then what we did on our study uh, was give patients Apple Watches. 
And one group answered their surveys um, with traditional paper and pen. One group answered their surveys, weekly surveys, um, using the iPhone. And then the third group used a combination of the iPhone and the watch. And the watch just had the emoji uh, questions. So each time we asked patients, how's your overall quality of life? Or what's your fatigue level? Those types of questions. And asked them to do the the usual zero to 10 estimation. But then the very next question was, you know, how's your quality of life or fatigue? The same question, but showing them five possible emoji faces. Uh, and what we found was that the faces track very nicely with the traditional zero to 10 numerical score. And patients really enjoyed uh, having that means of communication. It's one less question that you have to answer, or, or you're answering it, I guess, in just a different way. Right. right. So why is it so important uh, to track quality of life in cancer patients or any patient for that matter? Right, right. And I think you bring up a good point that this isn't just limited to cancer patients. Obviously, it's very important for cancer patients, but you could see how this is useful for patients with heart disease or stroke or other types of things. Well, patient reported outcomes um, are important for multiple things. So at the time of diagnosis uh, with cancer, there are multiple factors that we know are prognostic. So they'll predict how a patient will do. So for example, overall quality of life is predictive of overall survival in multiple cancer types. Asking patients their functional status is highly prognostic across all cancer types, and that's called the performance status. Um, so that's at diagnosis. But then moving forward, they're also very helpful to track patient symptoms and how they're tolerating treatment so that we can know what interventions do we need to do to improve their symptoms or improve quality of life, whether that's making a medication change or addressing other issues that can come up, such as financial needs, et cetera. I would have to imagine that if one of the goals that we have here at Mayo Clinic or for medicine and patients in general is to get people more on board with being part of the team of their cancer care or their heart care or whatever it might be. And if you can make that a little more user-friendly, then that seems that it would help the patients in the long run, no matter what their situation was. Absolutely. This type of technology of being able to have questions literally on your watch or Mm -hmm. on your phone in real time is very helpful. And then the other thing is that emoji are universal forms of communication. So if you speak Spanish, if you speak English, um, if you speak Somalian, Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Most people are familiar with the emoji faces now. And I think the emoji faces really represents an emotion. And that's easier for people to relate to, perhaps, then what's the difference between a one and a two? That's hard to quantify, but looking at a unhappy face versus a happy face, that's something that is easily relatable to. <laughs> so what are you going to do um, going forward with this research? Well, this study was really trying to understand um, the technology, the feasibility of this, and how are patients going to react to wearing a watch that has an app? Are they really going to answer the questions and learning how we can use emoji faces and also how can we use the physical activity data that we collect um, passively with the Apple watch? So we've learned a lot from, from this study, but it's really just the first step. 
many practices across Mayo Clinic and, and others are moving towards being able to communicate with patients, not just at the bedside or in the clinic, but in between appointments and figuring out the right tools for patients to be able to have that communication is really important. So what we'd like to do next is a similar study where we're querying patients and having them wear um, devices so we can track their activity and such, but deliver that information to their care teams and then determine how does that impact workflow, um, how much information is too much information, how much is not enough, develop those cutoffs for where uh, patients need to be contacted over the phone and or interventions um, be developed, and then look at how does that affect patient outcomes. There's been some data really interesting in cancer patients showing that if you talk to patients or communicate with them in between appointments, they are able to stay on chemotherapy longer and decrease emergency room visits and hospitalizations and such. So we want to continue um, studying that. I'm curious, when you ask cancer patients if they want to be part of a study, do they usually say yes or do they usually say no? We had a very easy time um, convincing patients to be part of this study. Um, I think for for two reasons. Um, One, patients see the value of studying things, not just what's the next treatment for cancer, which is, of course, exceedingly important, but the patient side of it is what is their experience um, going through therapy or being a cancer patient after treatment? And so they really appreciated the focus on on the patient experience. And then the other part that the um, patients gave us feedback on is they really enjoyed being able to track their activity. <laughs> That's good. That's <laughs> yeah, it encouraged good. people to, to really push themselves a little bit, which is great for recovery and fatigue levels. We've been talking with Mayo Clinic hematologist Dr. Carrie Thompson about her recent study, which used emojis as a new way for cancer patients to communicate how they were feeling to their providers. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Thompson. Thank you for having me. And that's our program for this week. For more information about topics discussed today, visit us on the web at Mayo Clinic News Network, where you can access a podcast of today's show, previously aired programs, and the latest news from Mayo Clinic. Have a question about health and medicine for one of our Mayo Clinic experts? Tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at newsnetwork.mayo.edu. We'll be answering your questions in upcoming programs. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.